Hi, everybody. Welcome to Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Every week, we take a look at world events and how they're unfolding around the world, geopolitics, geo-events in Europe and, and the Middle East and then in Far East Asia and the United States. We even take a look at the United States. And Rick, today, welcome to the program, by the way, Rick, but today we're taking a look at a couple of events and you've done the legwork looking at the stories that we'll be talking with our broadcast partners today. That's right. We've got our broadcast partners, Ken Timmerman, Dave Dolan, but we've also got Colonel Bob McGinnis this week and Winky Madad. So several old friends, but they're all super insightful. Yeah. What are some of the areas that we're going to be covering on the program today? Well, we're going to look at Iran and what's been taking place there. Recently, we've been so focused on Russia and Ukraine, but things have been taking place especially just this week in Iran that we need to take a look at. Plus, plus we'll focus in on the political situation in Israel. Yes, and uh, we'll take a look at China with Colonel Bob McGinnis, who's our China watcher. Along with us, Rick and I, we are really examining events. We are news watchers. We have a, a worldview, and that's how you get it, by watching the news. That determines your worldview but we have uh, especially a prophetic biblical worldview, and that's what we'll be using today as we examine these events and as we uh, go to our broadcast partners to get what's happening on the ground so that we can understand the times in which we're living, so that we know how to be prepared, how to live, to have that hope that's within us, to be looking for that glorious appearing, and it really is right around the corner as we see world events unfolding. Well, let's get started, Rick. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's a regular guest. He is a author. He's a journalist. And uh, he last week, he joined us from Sweden. This week, uh, Ken, you're in France. Uh, I've moved on to France for our uh, summer quarters. Uh, we're here taking care of our olive orchards and uh, taking a little downtime with family. Always interesting where we find you. Well, let's start off this week, and I want to start off in Iran, Ken. And a couple of days ago, there were some reports coming out that Iran was dismantling the cameras. Uh, this was reported by the Atomic Energy Agency. Can you tell us what this means? It's a very serious situation, Rick. These cameras that the Iranians are shutting down have been put in place by mutual agreement between Iran and the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA in Vienna. And they're there to give the agency some certainty that the Iranians are not cheating. So the cameras, they're surveillance cameras. It's a little bit like the police when the police wear uh, body cameras. So people have some recourse uh, if there are incidents later on. So when the Iranians shut these down, they're basically telling the IAEA, we're cheating. We don't want you to see what we're doing behind closed doors. And the head of the IAEA, uh, Rafael Grossi, is an Italian. He's, he's been very good, by the way. Uh, he said, look, uh, we've got maybe three or four weeks to resolve this situation. And if we do not, if the Iranians do not return to using those cameras, forget about any new nuclear deal with Iran. It's over. Well, Ken, isn't it true there has been quite a few instances of Iranian-backed proxies attacking the U.S. forces in the Middle East, and we really haven't responded, have we? Well, this is another reason why, frankly, the Biden administration needs to reassess its policy of engagement with Iran. Uh, I've spoken quite clearly, I think, uh, with you and to our listeners about this uh, consistently over many years. The only thing that the Iranians respect is a firm 
United States or a firm Great Britain or a firm France, when they see that a foreign country that they're dealing with is weak or that can be pushed around, they will just push more. Since uh, the month of May, there have been 29 attacks by Iranian proxy organizations against U.S. troops in Iraq or in Syria. 29 attacks. And the U.S. has done nothing. Uh, the, the Biden people, to their credit, responded twice early on in, in March of 2021 and again in May that year uh, against Iranian proxy attacks um, against our forces in, in Iraq. This time they're doing nothing. They're doing absolutely nothing. There have not been U.S. casualties. Fair enough. But they're doing nothing. The Iranians are letting us know we're here, guys. We can do a lot more than this if we decide to. Uh, they, their goal, however, is not, and this is the mistake the Biden people make, their goal is not to strike a deal with the United States. Their goal is to push us out of Iraq and out of the region. Well, my final question on Iran is I noticed, and this cannot be good news, I noticed that there was a tanker full of oil seized by Iran, and this seems to be uh, a tit-for-tat response. Uh, seizing tankers on the open sea is is going to lead to something bad, isn't it? Uh, it is, and, and here again shows you the weakness of the Biden administration. This, this tanker uh, was seized in May. Uh, it's called the Prudent Warrior. It was coming from Iraq with Iraqi oil that was going to Texas. Iraqi oil going to Texas, right? And it gets seized on the high seas in international waters by the Revolutionary Guards uh, and, and hauled into an Iranian port and impounded. The State Department made this extraordinary statement that we have nothing to say about the oil or about the tanker, or who owns it. We have no comment on the destination of the ship or the oil. I mean, unbelievable. You have, you have basically U.S. property, which is attacked on the high seas, and the United States of America does nothing. I, now, I can't assert to our listeners uh, 100% that this is unprecedented in American history, but I can tell you this. Uh, many, many, many presidents have reaffirmed uh, the freedom of navigation on international waterways many times at the expense of American lives. And here the Biden administration doesn't even have a comment on the ownership of the oil. This is really just extraordinary weakness, Rick, and it's very, very dangerous. Well, moving away from Iran, but uh, still talking about oil, and of course it's on everybody's minds nowadays, especially when you go to the gas station because price of gasoline is so high. But last week you told us a little bit about how the sanctions are working or actually may not be working against Russia and basically them selling uh, their oil. And it looks like they are finding new buyers for their oil and it's not really hurting them at all. No, and here's the supreme irony is that Russia, with oil now at $130, and by the way, the biggest trader, oil trader in the world, Trafigura, they're based in Switzerland, they have said publicly over the past couple of days they expect oil to hit $150 a barrel uh, in July and August. So as oil prices rise, Moscow can discount its oil by 20% or 30%, and they're still making $100 a barrel oil. So they are now selling on the black market. We talked about uh, the teacup 
refineries in, in communist China last week. They can sell now to India. Uh, they have, ex they have um, expanded the, um, uh, the capacity of a pipeline they've got through Siberia, through Siberian ports. Uh, so they're selling more oil to China, more oil to India, and more oil on the black market. And they're selling it at very good prices. By the way, the ruble has recovered. Uh, since its early collapse after the invasion of Ukraine and the Russian stock market has recovered as well. So the economic price that we all expected Putin to pay because of the invasion of Ukraine, well, guess what? He's slipping that noose as well. Former German Chancellor Angela Merkel has come up in the news again this week, and she's talking about warning against isolating Russia after Putin's quote-unquote big mistake. Well, I don't have a great deal of uh, kind things to say about Angela Merkel, uh, even though she did govern uh, Germany for 16 years as a conservative. She tried to be a conservative, but she herself made enormous mistakes, such as wel welcoming millions of Muslim immigrants into Germany that fundamentally changed the character of that country and fundamentally changed the relationship between Germany and places like Turkey. Right. And gave Turkey a say in the domestic affairs of Germany. All that is on Angela Merkel's head. It was revealed this past week, Rick, that Angela Merkel was using her prior relationship with Putin uh, on behalf of the new German chancellor who doesn't really know uh, Putin uh, to intervene and to be an intermediary. So she was calling Putin at the in the early stages of the war in, in Ukraine very quietly. She never made it public. And then she would brief uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz on those calls and where Putin stood on various issues. Uh, that has now become public. Uh, Putin has broken off those calls. He no longer takes Angela Merkel's telephone calls. But uh, this ability, she is she is basically trying to convince Europe to go easy on Putin don't punish him for this extraordinary violation of the European norms that he's carried out with the invasion of Ukraine. Don't punish him too hard because he might do something worse. I mean, I'm not sure I accept that logic, and I'm not sure that that logic is wise. Angela Merkel was at one time a very influential figure in the European Union, and now the European Union is still wrestling with the fact of whether or not they should put the uh, membership of Ukraine on the fast track. What are your thoughts on that? Well, they are still talking about it. I think uh, it's going to slow down uh, just as the uh, membership of Ukraine and NATO is going to slow down. Uh, there are enormous problems doing this at a time of war. Uh, Ukraine's economy is a shambles right now. They cannot export grain. Uh, here in France, we hear almost every day on the news about problems of Ukrainian uh, farmers unable to ship wheat uh, to get it through the ports. And so they are, there's an active negotiation uh, between the EU, Ukraine, and Russia to guarantee the export of what little grain is actually being harvested in Ukraine to allow that to be exported through the Black Sea uh, later this year. I think it's going to go uh, slow and not quickly, but Ukraine wants in. They want in because they see it as protection against Russia. Well, Ken, there's stuff taking place all over the world. This was truly a geopolitical conversation in Europe, the Middle East, the United States, all these things working together to help create this situation that we're in right now. We appreciate you informing our listeners and, and talking to us about this today. Uh, enjoy your time off there in France, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be with you. God bless.
Ken Timmerman is our expert who has the understanding of what is taking place in Europe. Really gives us our update on the European Union. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, our Middle East news update with David Dolan right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, fighting between rebels and security forces put civilians at risk. Tens of thousands have fled their homes since May 22nd when the rebels launched their biggest offensive in a decade. Sam Todd with Wycliffe Associates says in the northeastern part of the country, the fighting has halted almost all ministry. Wycliffe's partners still want to distribute the Bible in people's heart languages, though, so pray for an end to the violence. And nearly everything in Lebanon describes the status of a failed state. Yet God is still at work there. A Syrian refugee named Frangia is one example. She was trying to provide for her children, but her anger grew as Lebanon's crisis deepened. Soon, she could no longer buy medicine for her epileptic daughter. But Heart for Lebanon provided food aid and connected her with a doctor. Gospel conversations led Frangia to Christ. Read her full story and connect with Heart for Lebanon at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio. We've reached the portion of our program that we'd like to call the Middle East News Update, and to do that with us, we have Dave Dolan. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, most of the time we deal with things directly with Israel, but we're going to start off this week dealing with Iran. There's been a lot of news on the Iranian front, uh, some of it related to Israel and some of it related to their nuclear deal. Could you give us an update on that situation? Well, first off, Rick, we had a surprise visit by the Israeli prime minister on Thursday to the United Arab Emirates just across from Iran. And of course, Israel's made peace with the UAE and with Bahrain in the last couple of years under the Abraham Accords. And the main um, prompt for that, of course, was a shared enemy in Iran and the fear of Iran's power. And so the prime minister made this unannounced visit for two hours and met with uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the UAE president. And the speculation in some Israeli media outlets was that this is not only connected to Iran, that but that possibly uh, the prime minister was delivering the message that Israel is ready to take on Iran's nuclear program militarily and that that may be pending and that uh, he wanted to give this news to the UAE leader directly, personally, and uh, then he can pass it on personally to other 
uh, Arab leaders in that area. So we don't know that for sure, but we know it was a very surprised visit. It came just after the Iranian leader, the overall supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, made a very fiery speech on Wednesday in which he denounced uh, Zionism strongly and said it's the plague of the world. Uh, and he mentioned that uh, Zionist money and businessmen have been a plague for the whole world. So going back to the anti-Semitic trope of um, the Jews control all the money in the world and all the banks and that sort of thing, and uh, basically stated, uh, how many did, that they're going to stay on their war path until Israel is destroyed. Well, this came after Israel completed the four weeks of chariots of fire, special military operations. We discussed this several times before, which they staged long-range missile strikes using Cyprus as the uh, end point, but about the same distance to the northwest as Iran is to the northeast of Israel. They tested in-air refueling. They tested all sorts of things connected to attacking nuclear sites and that sort of thing. They also announced uh, uh, this week, uh, Rick, that the F-35 stealth jet that uh, the U.S. Uh, built can now reach Iran without needing mid-air refueling. Uh, that, if true, is a remarkable breakthrough, and the stealth uh, planes are very good, very fast. They also announced they now have a one-ton bomb that can uh, sit in that plane and uh, that it has been built in such a way that it avoids uh, radar detection as well. So we're looking like we're moving towards that showdown. We don't know, but it, of course, comes as the U.S. Uh, joined Britain and France this week at the U.N. condemning Iran's continuing nuclear program. This came after the United Nations Nuclear Energy Agency itself expressed grave concern over Iranian violations of the agreements that they have together, including Iran announcing it's going to dismantle 27 monitoring cameras in its nuclear facilities that the UN uses to keep a watch on its program. So the Western powers seem to have said the nuclear accord is not going to happen now. We can see that Iran has dug its heels in. President Biden seems to have concluded that and the other leaders concerned. And um, that may be the green light, as it were, for Israel to militarily take on Iran. And Rick, just one final thing about that. The Israeli government continues to crumble. The signs that it isn't going to stay in power are growing. We could talk about that separately. But it means that if they're going to take on Iran, the sooner they do it, the better in terms of Israel's domestic situation, because to do that in the middle of new uh, elections would be horrible. But it does look like uh, new elections will be coming uh, fairly soon. So this may be the moment to uh, deal with uh, Iran's nuclear program. As always, David, there's a lot of moving parts. But uh, just one thing I wanted to ask you, this anti-Israel rhetoric coming out of Iran, that's normal. We've seen that for a long time. What was interesting to me is that the ambition that President Biden had to make sure that this nuclear deal went through and he's given up on it. I was kind of surprised on that. I thought they might try to push it through at any cost. Well, and they still might. We haven't had the final word on that. But we've been hearing from uh, Biden himself and Secretary of State Blinken and other senior American officials for several months now, the obvious that the talks are not going well. 
that Iran continues to add demands, and in particular, the demand that the Revolutionary Guards be taken off the U.S. list of states of terrorist groups. Congress would never go along with that. There would be a firestorm, even in Biden's own party, not, of course, with the left-wing socialist part, but with the more majority mainstream if he tried to do that. So the talks are clearly going nowhere. Iran is clearly enriching uranium way beyond what it had promised it would do. It's broken pretty much every part of the accord, even though the other powers, only the U.S. quit the accord, Rick. Uh, The other powers, China, Russia, the three European powers, all stayed in it. So Iran really didn't have any reason to break the whole accord, but they've done that. And uh, Biden apparently now realizes it's irreparable uh, and that war is coming. And there's been many signs in recent weeks that the U.S. has concluded that, including, as I said, the fact that U.S. jets took part in some of these refueling uh, test operations uh, last month. So uh, we're heading, it seems, in that direction. But of course, it's all in the hands of God. David, amidst that turmoil that you alluded to, there was a story coming from the Knesset where a minister said that Israel and the quote-unquote occupation is the greatest threat to peace in the Middle East. Yeah, this is not surprisingly an Arab member of the Knesset, but in the Knesset itself, showing how vital and vibrant, I mean, Israel's democracy really is, uh, he sponsored a meeting this week Other Knesset members were there, left-wing Jewish and Arab Knesset members were there, and uh, members of other left-wing organizations, NGOs, etc., were invited, and many came. And yes, he said, uh, you know, Zionism is uh, echoing Khomeini is the greatest threat, and it is the biggest form of terrorism, he said, in the world. He said the great terror is a country occupying another country and terrorizing it far more than its, you know, individual responses here and there in in terrorist attacks uh, against the oppressive occupation, as he called it. So uh, that's a member of Israel's parliament (laughs) uh, speaking against uh, the Jewish state in such a strong and horrendous way. But that's the way the polls all show that is the way 65, 70 percent of the Palestinian people feel about Israel, which is why, again, Hamas, if there were new Palestinian elections, would win overwhelmingly. Various polls have shown because that's what people think. That's what they really uh, feel. And it, of course, once again, indicates there will be no a peaceful settlement between Israel and the Palestinians until maybe there's a forced one, maybe after another major war or something, but willingly entered into and adhered to. It just doesn't seem to be on the table because that Palestinian dream of seeing Israel totally destroyed, reinforced very much in recent years by Iran, Iran actually making it possible, they believe, for Israel to be destroyed and its allies. So uh, the war continues, but um, we just keep praying for that peace of Jerusalem. And again, we're just thankful that Jerusalem Day passed peacefully this year, despite all the threats for a new war to be launched on that day. Well, David, during this meeting you were talking about there, there was another interesting exchange between a Jewish minister and a joint list or Arab minister. And 
the Jewish minister was reading, talking about how the roots of this problem go so far back. And he said, it's not just 55 years, but it's 3,500 years. And he read from scripture where he read about the start of King David's reign. And it says that David captured Jerusalem, to which the Arab minister responded, is that when the occupation started? The occupation, well, I guess you could call it that, but it was started by, according to the Bible, God. Mm. (laughs) God said, Mm. I will uh, give you this land, Abraham, and to your descendants forever, and you'll be scattered uh, from it if you sin, which happened twice, and um, uh, you'll be regathered in the end and uh, restated, reconstituted as a nation, the dry bones coming together. You'll be on the mountains of Judea and Samaria as they are. You'll rebuild the ancient cities, which they've done, Shiloh and, and, and Bethel and all these places. So if that's occupation, well, it was God's choice and not uh, the Jewish people's choice. So that would be my, my answer to that particular point. Well, I just thought that was a very interesting interchange there in the Knesset. God has had a plan for the Jewish people, and part of that plan, as you said, was the return of the Jewish people from all over the world to the land of Israel. Well, David, thank you so much for taking your time today with us. We look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm blessed to do it, Rick, as you know. God bless. We're going to take a break right here on Prophecy Today. When we come back, Winky Madad. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we're going to go back to Israel and talk to Winky Madad. Winky Madad is so interesting, and he's got some thoughts about the possible return of Benjamin Netanyahu. Wow. <laughs> the prime minister, that he's one of the, the leaders, I would say, along with David Ben-Gurion, Ariel Sharon, uh, a lot of the prime ministers of Israel, and he's one of them. So let's get to Winky and find out what's happening in Israel. Winky Madad joins us today. He is an author and journalist, a former politician in what we would call uh, Judea and Samaria. He lives in Shiloh in Israel. Winky, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure. Well, the first thing I'd like to talk to you about is a United Nations Human Rights Council report that came out. Essentially, they are saying that the problem in Israel is the Israeli occupation of Palestinian land. Can you talk a little bit about this report and what it means? Well, I, I think our audience should be aware that this uh, council is made up of the most uh, horrible 
violators of human rights. It's sort of the complete ridiculousness epitome. And every year they have a permanent agenda item, which is Israel and the issue of the territories. And they are fed information for the most biased and one-sided groups. And even the United States State Department came out, uh, which we all know is not the most favorably inclined uh, at times to Israel, uh, basically denouncing the uh, the report and, and the makeup of the council and the way they engage in their activities. And it's just an indication of how the United Nations has been taken over by certain uh, states and uh, interest groups that have nothing to do with objective truth or involvement in actually investigating fairly any real or suspected violation. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, objective truth. I mean, you and I both know the facts on the ground there in Israel, how carefully the Israeli government uh, is is treating the Palestinian situation and trying to make something work. And I don't even think they have a peace partner. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't understand how this report comes out. To me, it, it certainly smacks of anti-Semitism. Well, it um, probably crosses the border, so I wouldn't even call it borderline anti-Semitism. But, but let me give you an example. Actually, I think I tweeted this earlier today. Uh, I saw a NGO report, an Israeli NGO report, uh, about settlers uprooting olive tree saplings. And they had a short clip, a short video clip. A, they claim it's on the Saturday of May 14th or something like that. You and I know that 90% of the so-called settlers, even if they're not completely religious, hmm. don't go out on the Shabbat into the fields and pick up saplings. It's just not done. Secondly, the three or four people you see there in the clip are shirtless and they're sort of walking around, bending and picking up things. It's a very disorganized clip uh, of activity. Now, I'm not saying 100% nothing ever happened. I don't believe it happened, but just for the sake of what, what you asked me, objective truth, uh, is this the proof of settlers uprooting olive saplings? It, it's very it's very weak. It has no context. It doesn't even look anything. And, and this is the stuff that gets laid at the uh, Human Rights Co Council of the United Nations. And then all of a sudden, we have headlines that we're the bad guys when it's it's all wrong. So many different competing narratives here. Um, and you're right, we should be looking for objective truth in this age of social media. So many different news outlets. You've got to realize where you're getting your news from and realize that a lot of it is certainly tinged one way or another. Well, uh, another story that I'd like to get your thoughts on, the Palestinian Authority is awaiting a visit from President Biden. He hasn't said exactly when he's going to come, but he said he is coming to the region. One of the things that the Palestinian Authority said that they're going to do is they are going to refrain from reversing their recognition of the state of Israel until Biden gets there. Interesting thought, huh? Well, it's, it's, it's like the baby in the, uh, in the sandbox getting all sort of throwing a temper tantrum or something like that. It, it's ineffective. It doesn't mean anything. The whole object of the original Oslo Accords was to negotiate and to conclude some sort of a an arrangement, if not 100% peace, at least so we can get on with our lives 
and everybody can be happy in stages. And they keep refusing to do that. And, and, and then they turn around and say, Israel is the guilty party for what we're doing all wrong. This is not the way that trust and acceptance and recognition between the sides uh, should be accomplished. And so if Biden, President Biden, wants to do anything, he doesn't have to get into a shouting match, which I understand President Trump and Mahmoud Abbas did on Trump's visit to Ramallah. But at least don't pander to their, their dreams and delusions of what can be and what should be gained by negotiating with Israel. The whole game is compromise. Israel is asked to compromise. They don't seem to be thinking that they should compromise. That's not going to gain them anything. And I think President Biden, if he does come here, he should be a little bit more honest with the uh, Palestinian Authority Tell them to get their act together, come down off the stage uh, of hysterionics and stuff like that, and get to work. Israel has always been there uh, to try to get a diplomatic solution if they agree to the basics of what we're supposed to be doing here. And that could be his contribution. Well, and it's been proven in the past that Israel has been willing to compromise. Israel has been willing to give up land. Um, but I'm not really sure that they have a peace partner in the Palestinian Authority. True. And and uh, from my point of view, I don't think the uh, Palestinian Authority side should expect 100% to gain what they want. We cannot yield on our security. We cannot yield on our future. Uh, we should make arrangements that we are able to live wherever we want to live in the Jewish national home. And these are things that could be arranged if they're willing to compromise. If they're not, then we should be blamed for their obstinance and rejectionism. Switching gears a little bit from the Palestinian-Israeli situation, I'd just like to get your opinion as a political insider in Israel uh, about the coalition. And I know that we could... We could go on for uh, days as to how complicated this subject is, but if you give us an overall view, what's your take on what's taking place there with the ruling coalition in Israel right now? Well, Rick, uh, if you go back to the archives uh, at your website, I'm sure you'll catch me somewhere indicating that maybe a year hmm. <laughs> and then with these things falling apart <laughs> because the, the whole basis for this coalition was to get together opposing camps, radical extremists in their own ideologies and pull everything together. Arabs, Jewish nationalists, uh, left-wing socialists, bourgeoisie centrists, and, and Ed, the only thing that united them was, we don't like Mr. Bibi Netanyahu. And off they went. And as we see, eventually the glue is becoming unstuck to use that image, and there's a lot of infighting, a lot of uh, umbrage, a lot of anger. People are realizing uh, that the polls are showing that some parties may not even cross the threshold, and they're looking for an escape route. And uh, this was foreseen. Perhaps the timing was a little bit off, but I don't think Mr. Bennett is capable with Mr. Lapid uh, of holding things together much longer. And they really are caught up now in rising prices. Uh, economics here is getting a little bit tough and it's only going to get worse. And everything they've built on has been Netanyahu's uh, successes 
And I think very shortly we might see either a uh, bolt of members of Knesset from the coalition or a continuing reduction of their uh, ability to pass legislation and then get into trouble, whether elections or whether trying to set up a new government within the present members of Knesset. Well, you mentioned that the thing that united the coalition that's in charge right now the most is basically their dislike of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Does this present an opportunity for Mr. Netanyahu to return to power? Polls are showing him in the area of 5961. In other words, he would prefer, I think, if I know Mr. Netanyahu, he would prefer to go elections and, and use that leverage and gain 61-62 in his coalition or future coalition. And that way he would, of course, dominate once again. I mean, the whole idea was to make Netanyahu, so to say, go away. He's come back much stronger than over a year ago. Hmm. Uh, his trial is completely falling apart from the point of view of the prosecution. He took a gamble on that. He believed in himself. And I think the public is very angry at the fact that he was taken down in, in a, with false charges, as it looks at the present. Again, the trial is not yet over, but it's looking very bad for the prosecution. And it could only uh, spur him to one or two more additional members of Knesset within his coalition. So, yes, that's what we're looking at, the Netanyahu comeback. Very interesting. Well, we'll keep tabs on that. Well, my final question. Last week at Jerusalem Flag Day uh, and the celebration of the reunification of the city of Jerusalem, they said over 2,600 Jewish people visited the Temple Mount. That was a stunning kind of reversal of what has taken place in the past. And I just wanted to get your take on the fact that there seems to be a public shift that was emphasized even more so recently. I read a Times of Israel article talking about the shift towards uh, wanting to allow, even among the non-religious, wanting to allow Jewish people up on the Temple Mount and even allowing them to pray on the Temple Mount. You and your late father are witnesses to the many conversations we have held over the years when I pointed out that we're engaged in very difficult long-term work of raising the consciousness of the people of Israel and our supporters to the importance of the Temple Mount, of the necessity to identify with it, to try to gain entrance and exert and exercise our rights by law at that site, and to prepare for the future which we know is written in the books. And uh, hmm. it's for some people maybe it's taking longer than necessary or what they expected, but uh, the amount of people, as you pointed out, entering into the Temple Mount with the necessity of ritual Jewish restrictions, shall we call them. Uh, in other words, many go to the mikveh, the uh, ritual bath beforehand. They do not wear leather shoes. They walk in a special itinerary on the outside of the uh, Temple Mount. I mean, inside the compound, but on the on the external part of the walls towards the outside and uh, not going close to the Dome of the Rock, for example, or too close. And it's working. The numbers are showing. Uh, just this past week, for example, we had a, a yeshiva high school that the boys celebrated their bar mitzvah at the Temple Mount. 
And the government is hard pressed with its police uh, to contain all the expressions of identity with uh, the Temple Mount. And we just have to continue. I'm not going to get overexcited, but I'm very happy that the uh, direction and how things are working out has proven what we have been talking about, at least on this station for many years, how to achieve parts of redemption uh, even before perhaps uh, they're scheduled to happen. Well, as you said, it's written in the books and we have been witness. It's been a slow, gradual change, but uh, since I've been going to Israel, for sure, and I know uh, since you've been involved and you've been involved politically and in the culture there, uh, we certainly have seen a shift. And uh, I appreciate you uh, joining us to kind of comment on that and, and be our witness and be our reporter from Israel. So thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Winky Medad has so much to add to the program as far as what's happening on the ground, especially in the area of the settlements. Well, we're going to turn to Bob McGinnis, Colonel Bob McGinnis, who is a great friend of the program. Colonel Bob McGinnis joins us today. He's a retired U.S. Army officer and an experienced military analyst with on-the-ground experience in Russia and Ukraine. He's written several books talking about the Russian and Chinese threat, including one of his latest books, Give Me Liberty, Not Marxism. Colonel Bob, thank you for joining us today. Oh, Rick, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we wanted to get your update. It's been three and a half months since Russia invaded Ukraine. Could you give us your thoughts on where we stand on this crisis? Yeah, well, Putin invaded on the 24th of February, fully expecting the Ukrainians to fold and that he would install a puppet regime in Kiev. Well, things haven't worked out that way. And we're well in excess of 100 days into this war. And, of course, uh, Putin and his forces have taken a shellacking in the north, and as a result, they withdrew from Kiev and have focused their energy in the east in the Donbass region. Now, you know, the battle has transitioned from one of direct contact with tanks and armored personnel carriers to one of mostly artillery, and that advantage is, of course, the Russians who have massed long-range artillery in comparison to what the Ukrainians have, although the West, NATO, and the United States are providing Ukrainians with more uh, long-range artillery. The question is whether or not that will come in time to really balance out uh, what's going on, and that's uh, somewhat questionable at this point. It needs to be understood that here recently, now, Vladimir Putin, of course, the president of Russia and the one behind the assault, compares himself to Tsar Peter the Great. He marked the 350 anniversary of Peter the Great's birth here this past week. And uh, what Putin said is that Peter the Great, what he did against Sweden in the 1700s, is exactly what Putin is doing today against Ukraine. That is, recollecting, bringing back into the fold uh, land that rightly belongs to Russia. And I've been saying this for a long time, that Putin has great ideas about the reunification of the Russian Empire. Uh, and of course, that includes all of the southern as well as the eastern part of Ukraine. And of course, he's always insisted that Ukraine is an illegitimate government uh, state formed by Lenin, the first dictator of the Soviet Union, and that yeah, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, 
there was a referendum in Ukraine to really break apart. Well, the fact is, historically, Ukraine has its own history, uh, its own culture, uh, and it is distinctive from Russia in spite of what Peter the Great and, of course, his late dictator Putin uh, would like the world to believe. So uh, there's a lot going on. I do believe that this war will will end, but it's not going to end nicely nor very soon. The killing is continues, and as long as the West is committed to supporting Ukraine, uh, then I think that uh, the bloodshed will will not cease uh, near term. Uh, but it will bog down, as you've seen, a lack of uh, news coverage over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, domestic issues have taken the front page on the United States uh, news services, and uh, Ukraine is not mentioned very often. Well, Bob, that combination of uh, Ukraine's limited success and the ambitions of Vladimir Putin, I know you said it will end. Do you see an exit strategy at all? Do you see how this ends? Yeah, I I don't believe that uh, Putin's going to just abandon the fight. Uh, He's going to insist that he maintains some momentum, some hold. Uh, It may in much like the 2014 invasion of Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and that is uh, he just stops fighting. They draw a line in the sand there in eastern Ukraine and say, okay, we're on this side, you're on the other side, Uh, and the uh, irregular warfare activities continue. Uh, There's no question historically that Putin, who of course sees himself as a modern-day Tsar Peter the Great, has any intention of surrendering uh, you know his long-term ambitions, and that is resurrecting, you know, land that he considers uh, part of the Russian Empire, and that would include, you know, Finland, Sweden, you know, certainly the the Baltic uh, countries. Uh, I'd be concerned if I were in Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, and the like. Uh, the whole Eastern Bloc uh, that used to be part of the Warsaw Pact would. You know, once again, come under the the rule if uh, Peter the Great Putin uh, has his ambition satisfied. And you know, he may not have the the resources at the present. Now, even though he's mobilizing reserves and sending more, you know, arms and the like uh, to the front, uh, he'll probably lick his wounds, uh, rest for a while uh, before launching another invasion, which could come in the next couple of years. Well, rightfully so. We are keeping our eye on Russia, and he does seem to have ambitions that may not be matched by his capabilities. But uh, longtime listeners of this program will know that there is another country that uh, potentially could be more of a threat, who have more global hegemonic uh, aspirations, and that's China. What has China been up to recently? Yeah, well, China is up to no good, and we're negotiating with them even today in Singapore. We're Lloyd Austin, who is the Secretary of Defense, is down there talking to his Chinese counterpart, and we're trying to uh, somewhat mitigate uh, the Chinese aggression in the South China and the East China Sea uh, against uh, the likes of all of our resources, uh, our Filipino, our Vietnamese, our Taiwanese, Japanese, obviously others uh, that are being affected by the hegemonic aggressive uh, Chinese. I have a new book coming out uh, this summer, Kings of the East, and it will address exclusively the Chinese threat on a number of uh, fronts. And uh, the communist Chinese, if 
if what you see with Vladimir Putin, uh, you multiply multiple times with regard to President Xi and his long-term ambitions. Uh, they consider themselves the, the middle kingdom. They consider themselves the, the most powerful, most important nation in the world. Uh, and they have no patience with anyone, and more recently with the United States, especially with the weakened Biden administration. So uh, there's a lot that is happening. I do believe that uh, we're on the cusp of uh, direct military confrontation uh, with China. Uh, that could happen in the next couple of years. Certainly, uh, there's no question that Xi will take Taiwan, given the opportunity, He'd like to do it peacefully without firing a shot, but he's more than willing to use it uh, military uh, means uh, to take that island nation that's been that really broke away back in 1949 uh, with the KMT uh, and formed a democratic country which has been very prosperous, uh, but now faces the adversary of the communist Chinese who have every intention of reuniting that breakaway what they call province, uh, to the fold. In reference to Taiwan, I know there were some U.S. lawmakers visiting there, and China held military drills basically almost directly overhead them, kind of as a, a shot over the bow. And then I'd also like to get your thoughts. I know President Biden seemed to change policy and commit to military action if China did invade Taiwan. Yeah, uh, that was probably another gaffe on his part, even though yeah, he made three such gaffes on the same topic uh, since August of this past year. You know, Mr. Biden, uh, I think, is reflecting perhaps the briefings that he's been getting that uh, the U.S. and China, I think, are on a collision course. Uh, words that have been used by President Xi, and interestingly, uh, words used as far back as Richard Nixon in 72 when he introduced China to the, the modern world. Uh, so when you consider you know, that we uh, have a defense obligation to Taiwan, though we keep it ambiguous, uh, we have been selling them uh, very sophisticated weapons platforms. And, of course, the Chinese uh, have been, you know, of late especially, have been very aggressive in the air and in the sea around Taiwan and the South China Sea were large, uh, and they've made no pretense about uh, their intention to be the hegemon uh, throughout the region. So uh, these are issues of some gravity. Uh, China is clearly the existential threat to the United States, even though uh, Russia, by comparison, has 6,300 uh, nuclear weapons. The Chinese uh, their arsenal is growing rapidly, and they have capabilities that uh, are on par with ours, uh, unlike uh, some of what you've been seeing of late from the Russians. Well, Bob, my final question. Uh, this past week, we remembered the 78th anniversary of D-Day, and I'd like to get your thoughts on the importance of that event. I know you're um, a military historian. Um, and, then, and then maybe if you could just follow that up with the fact that the White House last year did not recognize it officially at all, and then this year only did late in the evening after some news stories uh, pointed it out. Could you tell me, is that just an oversight, or do you think there's something more there? Yeah. Well, well June the 6th, 1944, of course, uh, 
uh, we had tens of thousands of Allied troops uh, aboard 7,000 different uh, boats landed on the beaches of Omaha, Utah, Juno Sword and Gold. We lost that very day. 4,414 Americans died in the waters there of those beaches, and another 5,000 were wounded as we invaded and eventually overcame the Nazi regime uh, in uh, about a year uh, of hard fighting. It's important that we remember the sacrifice of those on that particular day. Uh, In fact, uh, General... Mark Milley, the chairman of Joint Chiefs, was over at that those beaches, and he made a speech. He, he actually compared, interestingly, uh, that Ukraine is about honoring the veterans of World War II as he o- overlooked uh, the American cemetery there at Normandy. The Biden administration, interestingly, as you've indicated, Rick, two years in a row, seems to have forgotten about that significant time in our recent history and the sacrifice that many Americans made for the freedoms of not only here, but of our allies in Europe. I think it it was short-sighted, and it was a snub uh, to the World War II generation, you know, that uh, the mark that they made 78 years ago uh, was no longer as important as, you know, some of the social media tweets and the like of, Uh, This administration, who seems to care more about its uh, climate change ideology uh, and its pro-abortion ideology than it does about uh, the rich history that gave us the the freedoms that we enjoy and have enjoyed for 240-plus years. Well, Colonel Bob McGinnis, thank you so much. Your ability to communicate and your insight is exceptional. We appreciate you being on the program, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, Rick, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Rick, two great interviews. Well, we're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, my brother, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, coming up in this half hour, we have the Legacy Series. And then you and I will take a look at the book at the end where we will take a look at the events that we've been focusing on and tie them to the word of God. On our website, there are many things that people can find on our website. For instance, the news stories that we cover in the weekend program. That's right. The website has all kinds of resources. You can get our news stories. We also have a list of all of our other resources and a bookstore where you can purchase them. Well, Rick, this week we're going to Genesis chapter 10, and you know what that is. Well, that's right. It's one of those chapters that you sometimes look over. It's a chapter of genealogies. Yes. Don't ever look over genealogies, and we're going to find the importance of genealogies in God's Word. Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 10 were chapters of genealogies. In fact, the Gentile nations begin in Genesis chapter 10. And from the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, we see a division of the nations and how they come to be. And this was 4,500 years ago that this particular portion of Scripture is talking about. 
the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, when the people of the world disobeyed God. As a matter of fact, Nimrod, the leader of Babel that went against God and decided to not allow the people to repopulate the earth, as Dad talked about last week in Genesis chapter 9. But this week, God has a plan, and he allows the people of the earth to divide into nations, and they find a land and a language. And that's where we're going to start today in Genesis chapter 10. So take your Bible, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series, Genesis chapter 10. Now notice the next verse, verse 6, and the sons of Ham. By the way, you know where uh, Magog went to live? He took his family, went north of the Caspian and Black Sea. That's what we know as modern-day Russia today. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. Oh, they stayed south of the Caspian and Black Sea. Uh, that's the area we know as modern-day Turkey. Uh, if you go to Turkey, I've been there a number of times doing television programs in the seven churches and also in Istanbul. I picked up an ancient Turkish map on one of my visits there. And Turkey in biblical times was divided into four parts, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. And so that's where they went to live, south of the Caspian and Black Sea. And so we see prophecy doesn't start in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Nahum, the book of Obadiah, the book of Revelation. It starts in the book of Genesis. Here in verse 6, and the sons of Ham, this would be the second son, Cush, Mizram, Put. Let me tell you who they are today. Cush, he went to the area that we know today as Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. They have to have extra-biblical studies, and there are books, there are resource materials that will assist you in this. Mizoram, well, that is the Hebrew name for Egypt. Put, well, that's Libya of today. By the way, friends, this helps us to understand. Listen, Ishmael did not father the Arab world. Ishmael fathered one nation, Genesis 17, 20. And I will make Ishmael the father of one nation. Genesis 25, 18, he went to a place described in that passage of scripture as Arabia. He established Saudi Arabia. 83rd chapter of Psalms, I think it's verse 6, says the Ishmaelites. Those would be the Saudi Arabian people. Ishmael did not father the Arab world. He fathered one nation. Let me prove that very easily for you. In chapter 16 of the book of Genesis, it talks about Sarai not being able to have children. So she gave her handmaiden to Abram in order that he might be able to have a son. And that handmaiden's name was Hagar, an Egyptian handmaiden. Is there a medical doctor in the house? Hold your hand up just a second. Medical doctor right here. May I ask you a question? Can a son father his mother? Okay, we got the absolute authority speaking here. A son cannot father his mother. How do you think Egypt came into existence if Ishmael was the father of the Arab world? Because his mother was an Egyptian. Pay attention to what the word says. I'm talking here about a group of nations. Do you hear what I said? Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, Egypt. They're all Arab countries. Guess what? They were around 500 years before Ishmael ever came on the scene. He's over in the 16th chapter of the book of Genesis. Abraham wasn't even on the scene when this all happened. So Ishmael did not father the Arab world, neither did Abraham father the Arab world. We use a lot of bad terminology. We've got to be biblical. 
Abraham is not the father of all the Arabs. Let's continue to read. Verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be mighty one on the earth. That's who I wanted to introduce to you. I want to introduce to you the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. This king will have a protege who's going to be, as Nimrod was 4,500 years ago after the flood, one of the major players. In the end times, his protege will be a major player in that time called the tribulation. The seven-year period of time between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. In this seven-year period of time, 16 chapters in the book of Revelation with description of all the details, we will see Nimrod and the kingdom he established, the major players for these. We'll explain as we go through, so hang on. Nimrod, I've just shown you his ancestry. He comes from Noah, through Ham, through Cush, and he's a great-grandson of Noah. See, Ham's the son, Cush the grandson, Nimrod the great-grandson. And he comes on the scene. What an unbelievable, excellent ancestry. Nimrod comes on the scene. Let me show you his aggressiveness. Verse 9. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Where it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, I've got to be honest with you, folks. That has been a very difficult passage in years past for me to understand. Why would God include with his scripture here information about the recreational activities of the guy named Nimrod? He was a hunter. So what? Why is that written in scripture? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So I had to figure it out. What is it? I think I finally figured it out. You know, when you think about hunting today, is Nimrod, does he go out and shoot turkeys? Or is he a duck hunter? Or maybe he's a deer hunter. But what made Nimrod a mighty hunter? Let me tell you what I think he hunted. And and by the way, I was just at the Creation Museum just out of Cincinnati, Ken Ham's Creation Museum. If you've never been there, you've got to go. They have a person there in a display that agrees basically with what I'm saying. I believe Nimrod hunted down and killed most of the dinosaurs. A Harvard University professor has just written a major paper on that exact theme, that the dinosaurs were wiped out by people hunting them down. And I believe that's what the book is talking about when it says, Nimrod's a mighty hunter before the Lord. How do you think he got all of humankind, all of the world's population, to follow him? Don't you remember before the flood, dinosaurs were vegetarians. After the flood, they were meat eaters. And when the flood is over and these people start to populate and repeople the earth, they had to deal with these dinosaurs, these major giant creatures. You know the dinosaurs were on the ark, do you not? Of course they were on the ark. Two of every kind went on the ark. Now, let me just tell you this. I seriously believe Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, took care of the dinosaurs. You know where Nimrod and everybody went? They went towards the desert. The mountains of Ararat was a cold, wintry style of season, even during the summer. So they went to, how do I know that? Well, look over here in verse 10. I've just showed you his aggressiveness. Let me show you his ambition and where he's going to go. 
verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom. Now notice what that means, folks. This is a kingdom that's set up. The first one was set up in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, which we know as the city of Jerusalem. That's a major city in the end times. The second one was set up at Babel. It's right here, it says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel on the shores of the Euphrates River in the lands of Shinar, the two river cities. That's the Tigris Euphrates. And on the shores of the Euphrates River in what we know as modern day Iraq, Nimrod's ambition was to become a king of a kingdom. And that is a prototype for what's going to happen in the end times. Let me say this. Nimrod, Nimrod, had a very interesting rise to power. But he had a religious portfolio as well. Because he didn't like what God had told him to do. He was going against what God told him to do. Look at verse 11. Excuse me, chapter 11, verse 4. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. He goes to Babel. He establishes this city. God said to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Verse 4. And they said, go to, let us build us a city. That's his kingdom. Notice what he says. Let us build us a city, but then notice what he says. And a tower whose top may reach into heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. What did Nimrod do? Nimrod went and he established a religion. He had a religious portfolio. He understood as a great hunter, I can gather them together, but I've got to keep them together. And what will do that? Religion. So he establishes a religion. What does he say? Let us build us a tower whose top may reach into heaven. I want you to know the truth. That's the last place he wanted to go, truly into heaven. But he was setting up a religious. The obelisk, this tower that he's building, is a symbol of religion. Notice what he says after that. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the earth. Now that's not talking about being popular. Who's he going to be popular in front of? I mean, there's nobody else in the world. They're all living in Babylon. So it's not talking about popularity. It's talking about a religion. Let us make us a name. We don't like the name Jehovah God. We're going to call him Marduk, the Babylonian God. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the earth. Jehovah God wants us to scatter. We'll get us a God who will do what we dictate for him to do, lest we be scattered upon the whole earth. Extra biblical information. My source is Dr. John Walbert, the late Dr. John Walbert, who was president of Dallas Theological Seminary, chancellor, and one of the great scholars, biblical scholars, as it relates to Bible prophecy. In his commentary on the book of Revelation in chapter 17, he deals with this issue. Here's what happened. Nimrod had a wife. They got married. Her name was Semiramis. So Nimrod and Semiramis, husband and wife, had a child. His name was Tammuz. In light of developing this religious portfolio, Nimrod brings his family, had a family connection, into it. And he brings Semiramis and Tammuz to be the co-recipients of worship. A mother-son cult established 4,500 years ago as a religion. Now, one of them, Semiramis, is not mentioned by name. She's mentioned by title in the Bible. Her son, Tammuz, the son of the mother-son cult, is mentioned by name. Indeed, the title of the mother of the mother-son cult 
the false religion started at Babylon 4,500 years ago, is found in the Bible. Also, the name of the son of this cult is mentioned in the scriptures. This information that we receive from a study of God's word on this matter helps us to determine the prophetic truth that can be found in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, is the prophecy of a worldwide false religion that will be prominent in the first half of the seven-year tribulation period that takes place right after the rapture of the church. Next week in our Bible study, we'll find out from the Holy Scriptures this information which is needed for understanding of additional studies in Bible prophecy. You don't want to miss our next program. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, Alpha and Omega. We'd like to take this opportunity, both Rick and myself, our family, and the ministry, to say thank you to the radio stations that allow us to be on, to let these messages be heard, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and his teaching, but also as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, it's understanding Bible prophecy that allows us to see what's happening in the world, to understand why the world is acting as it is, and to be able to teach and focus on events to show us how close that we're coming to the rapture of the church. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. After withdrawing from the northern regions of Ukraine, Russian invasion forces have refocused their assault on the east. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russians now control about 20% of all Ukrainian territory. Eric Mach with the Slava Gospel Association is working to rebuild their seminary in Irpine. Supported by SGA, local Ukrainian churches are sending out food, medicine, and the gospel. Get the full story at missionnews.org. And students in Lebanon have returned to school after years of complications due to COVID-19. That includes students with the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development. LSESD operates Beirut Baptist School and the Skilled Program, which focuses on learning differences. The financial crisis continues to weigh heavily on students and families. Many wish they could leave the country. Ask God to strengthen the LSESD team as they share Jesus' love with the students. Mission Network News, a service of One-Way Ministries. I'm Ms. Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we've been looking at the current events of this world, what's happening in today's world. 
and examining them in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, as each day goes by, we see world leaders making decisions that are changing the course of the world in which we live in right now. That's true, and the Bible does say that God does use world leaders, and so we're witness to that as it takes place right now. We started off this week with Ken Timmerman, and at the top of the storyline for him was we were talking about Iran, so many things taking place in Iran right now, and it looks like there's an end to the nuclear deal, but not an end to Iran's influence in the Middle East. There's certainly the Ayatollah and the leaders of Iran are just taking uh, and wanting to wipe out the Jewish people. That's the main focus. That's almost the main focus of their even their their very existence of them as a nation. They feel it's their role. And of course, this is what the Word of God says in Ezekiel chapter 38 and Psalm 83. After Ken, we went to Dave Dolan. And one of the things that I thought was interesting there is we talked about an exchange between a Jewish Knesset member and an Arab Knesset member. And the Jewish Knesset member was reading from Scripture, and he talked about from there where David captured Jerusalem. And the Arab Knesset member said, well, I guess that's where the occupation started. It was an interesting exchange, but it just says this is not 1967. This goes back 3,500 years ago, and even back to Abram, and even back to the Garden of Eden. I do think that sometimes uh, as we look at the Palestinian people, which is, by the way, a term that is more recent, it's not an old term, there were the Edomites and the uh, descendants of Jacob, the Jewish people. The Edomites came in when Jacob and Esau had to depart, and Esau went to Edom, which is in modern-day Petra. So this is the beginning of this struggle between two brothers, two twin brothers, as they come about. So this struggle that began didn't necessarily begin with what we call the Palestinian people, but we do see this struggle began with these two brothers, and it continues today. Winky Madad was able to do, fill us in on Israeli politics, but one of the things that I was most interested in what he was talking about is kind of the gradual, I guess you would call it, escalation of awareness among Jews in Israel about the importance of the Temple Mount. You know, that is so true, and I like what he said. If you go back over the years, it's been a gradual awareness, uh, awakening of the importance of the Temple Mount, and it still is continuing to grow. I like what he said. I'm not getting overly excited, but I'm very pleased as to how we're going in the direction. I do think that the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem is going to become the focal point. We know that from Scripture, that not only will it become the focal point in the next seven-year period of time, but it will be the focal point through the millennial period, the 1,000-year period on the earth, and into the future. So this is a focal point, and to have the Jewish people today recognize how important it is, the most holiest site on the earth, which would be that space on the top of Mount Moriah in the city of Jerusalem. Bob McGinnis was excellent as well today. He uh, gave us an update on the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but he also talked about China and mentioned a book that he's writing called The Kings of the East, which is very interesting. We do know that China has a role to play in the end times as well. 
Yes. Revelation chapter 16, they will join up. Uh, the kings out of the east will join and come against Israel. Uh, again, all of these events, understanding how it's going to unfold in Bible prophecy, that's how we focus on the events that we focus on. The one thing that I liked and I really, um, when we were talking about and discussing the events that we were going to cover with all of our broadcast partners, I wanted to talk about D-Day. First of all, I think it's a very important time in history and decisions that world leaders made at that point in time changed the course of history. God allowed that, like you said at the beginning of this program, that's Revelation chapter 17, where God uses world leaders to accomplish his will. At that point in time, when America, uh, Great Britain, all the nations that were involved stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, Yes, that changed the course of the war and how it would unfold in Europe and thus stopping Adolf Hitler. Rick, and I know that you have done a lot of work and a lot of study in this. Is history is something that is so important to you also, correct? That's correct. And again, I also want to honor those uh, soldiers that fought and died on that day. And, and I'm disappointed that it was kind of left out or is kind of fading into the background, it seems, amongst other priorities uh, nowadays. But it's also very interesting because that time, right around the creation of the Jewish state of Israel, and uh, many things happened during that time that provided a motivation or an impetus for the Jewish people to create that state. They had a place to go, and that they knew that that land was the land that God gave them. As a matter of fact, uh, there were other parcels of land in the world that they were going to give the Jewish people as they were fleeing from Europe. But the Jewish people that were there said, no, we know the borders of the land of Israel that is given 35 different locations in the book of Genesis. Those lands that were provided by God, promised to them forever. And today, uh, that's where the Jewish people are. And the state of Israel was was brought back into existence and I think it's all of a result of world leaders and the decisions that they've made. As they have made positive decisions throughout history, uh, we put together a DVD that talked about decisions that the last seven presidents have made. I do think that our current president and future presidents are going to continue to make decisions that are going to affect history, but only in the sense that God allows them and it's his will that will be accomplished in this decision-making process. Rick, uh, it's so very important that we study Scripture, that we understand what's taking place, and that we have an understanding not only of his story, history, but its past, present, and future. That was exemplified today. We looked forward to events that uh, are going to take place in the future, but we also looked back at Genesis during the Legacy series. Rick, to wrap up the program today, I was just talking to a pastor friend of mine who says, you know, you can almost hear the hoofbeats of Bible mm. prophecy and the approaching uh, <laughs> Lord as he's coming. You can do that, and as you examine current events, which God has given us the ability to do, to understand the times in which we're living, Rick, we are getting close to the end times. Thank you for joining me today. It was my pleasure, Jimmy. Thank you so much. Folks, as we watch the events, we can't help but think that the rapture of the church is closer than it's ever been. Let's keep looking up. 
Until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.